Welcome to the Mortis and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 59. I'm Mike Updegraff. And I'm Joshua Klein. And we're working through our mini-series, uh, going through David Pye's The Nature and Art of Workmanship, uh, chapter by chapter. This is a great book. Um, there's a lot here to chew on, a lot to argue with, and so that's what we're doing. And uh, it's been fun to have others uh, join along and uh, comment and send questions and thoughts. Uh, so we're going to dive back in. To chapter 8. Uh, chapter 8 is called Durability. Especially when you're thinking about workmanship, you're thinking about uh, how you're making things, you know, what is true craftsmanship, you're thinking about durability, making something to last. And so this chapter appropriately tackles that subject. Now, it's actually a relatively short chapter. Pi doesn't have tons to say about it, uh, but you get the sense reading it that he feels compelled. He needs to talk about right. this particular thing because, as he says, uh, durability is a preoccupation of every workman. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're going to make something, you should make it to last. And so this is something that uh, people think about. And so he's bringing this discussion um, up in the midst of his risk and certainty sort of thing to, to highlight the difference between those. Yeah, I think, so where he starts off here, uh, Joshua, as you just said, he says that durability is is thus a preoccupation of every workman. Um he makes a point that I think is worth calling out. He says, at any given time, each trade has accepted standards of what are good methods. And he, so he goes on from there, but he's saying this, is, um, this value changes over time. The idea of what is appropriately durable changes. And so... Um, and within trades, too, not right, just time. Exactly. Each trade yeah, has its, its own It's time-bound and trade-bound. Yep. And so there is a time when... Uh, you know, an object might last for a short time, but that was an appropriate use of that. Like, uh, let's say you needed to do some woodworking and your tool is a chipped stone tool or a flint tool. And you could use that tool for like 10 to 15 minutes before you had to sharpen it. And then you'd sharpen it by removing a large amount of tool and then you use it again. And yeah. pretty soon it's gone, and your tool is gone, and you've you've gotten you know a quarter of the way through your task. But that was acceptable and appropriate because that was available. Mm-hmm. Or like a cutting board, it's going to get used up right. eventually. Yeah, right? it's kind of a consumable. But that those values change over time. Just just to say that. Right, and so he also says so we have this idea that you know craftsmanship is about durability, but we have this uh, phenomenon we experience. We think about real, true craftsmanship, you know, they really did it right because, look, it lasted so long. But he says, uh, but actually, one finds examples of bad methods or workmanship which have lasted just as long as the good ones. And if you spend any time (laughs) around antique furniture, you know this is true. You have seen some, you've seen some things. Uh, You're like, how did that hold together? But it did, you know. You see terrible joinery, you see... Uh, misboard holes and you see nails that totally missed what they were aimed at. Um, however, somehow over the years, th- through care, through uh, other aspects of that piece that that were built beyond what was needed for its use, uh, it survived. And yeah. so uh, you, I think what Pi is saying here is, okay, so what does that mean? What is like, what is well built then? If mm-hmm. something's 300 years old, but, uh, it looks shoddy, 
but it's held together. Like 300 years is a pretty good lifespan. Yeah, right. So, yeah, and obviously uh, these are sort of, this is sort of a classic thing when you're thinking about uh, pre-industrial furniture. You're thinking, uh, why does this look the way it does? Or, you know, we have X number, we have records of X number of chairs in this thing, this area made. Where are all those chairs, right? right. Are they all junk? Is that why they're disposed of? Um, we have so many wooden jack planes that were recorded to have been made. Where are they all? Yeah, we we have a small small number of them compared to what were made, and there are records of people throwing them in wood stoves to you know yeah. the old wooden hen planes get rid of those because we have new metal body planes now you know so there are also sorts of reasons of you know or things you can think about. This used to be common. Now we look at what's surviving a hundred, two hundred, three hundred years later, and where are they all? Hmm. And then the reverse, so you you have well this is clearly not like the ideal way to build something but here it stands mm-hmm. why right maybe this thing sat in an attic all the time or maybe there was a, a, a fad that came through those all those chairs that were made are dispensed but really a lot of it kind of mm-hmm. comes down to it really is an argument from silence to try to guess why such, something yeah. exists but that doesn't mean you can't discern patterns uh, or trends but what pi is focused on here is thinking about um, this this notion of durability, meaning you know, like quality, integrity, soundness of construction. Yeah. And he's saying, okay, so we got this workmanship of risk side of the continuum, and we have workmanship of certainty. So if we're talking about soundness, integrity of construction, how does that question play into these two different ways of working? Yeah, so this is basically like looking at the fourth dimension of furniture, okay? So, so of course, <laughs> yeah. we have the spatial dimensions and we have time. And so time is the dimension that uh, you don't know how far in that dimension that piece of furniture is going to stretch. But that's what durability is. It's mm-hmm. the extension in the fourth dimension, you could say. Um, so Pai is looking at this and he, he says, you know, we look at furniture and what it what exists and continues today, what has um, shown durability, uh, there are beautiful pieces that exist and there are rough pieces that exist. And so he says, um, he says, maybe a lot of what we consider to be good or, you know, like the way things used to be made because they knew how to do it right. Maybe we consider those, our values are more aesthetic than actually uh, structural, yeah, or technical, like, or nailed yeah. furniture lasts for centuries, right? Yep. Even like butted and nailed, mm-hmm. it, you can do very simple joinery like that and have it last. So when we say, "Oh, well, the the quality, the the craftsmanship was way better," and look how enduring that is, those are probably more aesthetic values than actual practical. Uh, durability value. Yeah, you can have some pretty shoddy looking dovetails that are yeah. wicked strong. Yeah. Yeah. He, he makes this case. He says, no one supposes that secret miter dovetails are any more durable than lapped ones. So, <laughs> exactly. You know, there we have it. But you look at the secret miter dovetails and you're in awe over that and you're saying, well, that's how that should have been made. That was amazing. Yeah. Um, but the question of durability isn't really part of that equation. Right. So um, he he talks about this. He says workmanship of certainty. Um, it's easier pr- to produce high regulation than to do without it. Mm-hmm. So when you're when you're, this is just sort of a fundamental, you know, repeating what he's been saying the whole time along. But when you're doing workmanship of certainty, when you have machines set up or it's heavily jigged, 
it is just easier to do to work to high regulation. You mm-hmm. can't really veer off the fence when yeah. you're riding the fence. It just it is that way. Um, but with workmanship of risk, it is not that way. It is completely dependent on, or very much dependent on your hand skill to guide that. So he's just kind of setting that up. And he says that there uh, seems to be a tacit conspiracy. Uh-oh. Okay, so he, <laughs> Pi is a, cons- conspiracy, a conspiracy theorist. theorist. He says there seems to be a, a tacit conspiracy between designers and workmen to suggest that more of this high regulation is necessary than is the case. Hmm. Right? So uh, I think that's an interesting comment because uh, it's it's almost sort of like, I don't know if he's like, they're like dodging or something. It's, he's saying um, that designers and workmen are saying, you know what you really need? You need secret miter dovetails because hmm. that's true craftsmanship and that lasts a really long time and that's really expensive. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that last point is the important <laughs> one. Yeah. And so there's this, there's this prestige that could you know, be developed with it, like, oh, yes, well, I have secret miter dovetails. Right. No, you can't see them. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) but they're really there. They're really in there. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think it gets back to some of what he has been talking about in in previous chapters about, uh, like in the last chapter, he talks about how something made with, uh, you have a sense that this is a precisely made object. There's a lot of... uh, social value in that. Mm-hmm. There's uh, there's prestige in that. Mm-hmm. If you can afford to pay for a more precisely made object, you know, and we're talking handmade object, okay, so centuries ago, um, you gain a lot of uh, social points having yeah. that object in your parlor. Right. And you can say, look at this, and this, look how precisely fitted this is. This mm-hmm. is a real value. But it's it's an economic value because then those makers who are making those know that they can charge that much more if they can find the clients to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And so Pi is getting kind of back to that argument. He's saying, yeah, they seem to be working together to say, yes, not only is that more precise, but it's also more durable, so it has more value to it. And it's there, therefore uh, a client is more inclined to pay extra for those, those details. Yeah. And so he's just saying, okay, so in real life, when, when you know, the rubber meets the road, durability actually is not that dependent on high regulation per right. se. It's about understanding the materials and applying it properly or overbuilding so you have you know, thicker material. That's really where durability is coming from. Um, and risk and certainty are there are two different ways of approaching durability, but high regulation super precise is not the defining thing about whether this will uh, survive to the next generations or not. Yeah, I think like just a a big picture view of this chapter is like Pi is looking, as I read this, uh, it seems to me that Pi is saying when something fails, who's to blame? Sure, so that's, a, when, yeah, that's a good way when to you look frame at the chapter. An object that's either made with the workmanship of certainty, say it's mass-produced in a factory or made on machines, and you have an object that's made with the workmanship of risk, let's say by hand with simple tools, he says, like, if it's made with an industrial process, uh, the blame for failure is more on the designer or the materials. Because... Who selected un- the materials? Right, right, exactly. Right. Yeah. So... He's saying that uh, 
when you design an object and you know that the produced object is going to turn out pretty much exactly how you designed it, you're at fault if it fails. But if you are working by hand with freedom to, to vary and alter the design as much as possible, as much as you want to, or if you're the designer as you're building it, which was often the case, mm-hmm. you know, you're building to a form, but not necessarily to measured drawings. Um, if that thing fails, it's more your fault because you, you used the wrong joiner or you bored too close to the edge or yeah, you right. did something like that. So, um, he, Pi uses this, this example here. He's talking about, um, high regulation and quality and, and things like that. He says, a very rough job may last just as well, and so it must be repeated, may a bad one. He says he remembers an Amati violin, an authentic one, which I was shown after it had been open for repair. He said it was a shocking job. So he's talking about, <laughs> you know, the secondary surfaces, the inside of this violin. He says there are glue lines thicker than one's thumbnail, if not worse. Yet it had been singing its song to generation after generation and been treasured by them all because of it. It was a very good and durable violin, in fact, regulation or no regulation, but not by any means up to later standards of workmanship. Yep. So there's, there's a lot there to, to think through, to say this is a, a classic violin by a classic maker, but it was not up to the later standards of precision in violin manufacture. Right. And I think that's so interesting because, I mean, that's the whole point. Up to the standards of precision. Right. As if precision is the ideal in itself. That's right. The more precise you can be, the better off you're going to be. And I think that's what Pi is trying to get at. The precision and durability thing, you know, the, the high regulation and durability, they're really not the same concept yeah, at all. It's not hand in hand. Um, you might have a workmanship of certainty that's highly regulated, but that doesn't mean it's going to last. And so I think that's for the violin example, it's a really strong, uh, vivid uh, picture of what those of us who have seen antique furniture, we all know this. Yeah. The insides were left rough, almost rough. without yeah. exception. Yeah. That, is, that is what it looks like to make something by hand. It always has. Um, and so it, it, I think it's interesting. Pi almost says, describes this almost as like an exception. You, you read it, and you're like, oh, wow, he saw yeah. a fine object that was rough on rough the inside. inside. Yeah. When in reality, they everything that was uh, pre-industrially made is like that. Yeah. Unless it's under really strict, unique situations with heavy, heavy guild control. But even with that, uh, you still have a lot of uh, coarse tool marks in the nooks and crannies inside. Yeah. Um, so... So I think this is, I think it's a really relevant point. And I remember, you know, I was reading this as, uh, for the first time when I read it, I was deep into antique furniture and uh, my, had my head inside these uh, case pieces. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking, yeah, hmm. Everybody mm-hmm. keeps telling me about what should and shouldn't be done with, an, with uh, furniture. This is the right way to do it. And this is quality and this is precise. And then you read this chapter and you're like, yeah, wait a second. Yeah, I feel like I think you've pulled the wool over my eyes. Industrial here. standards are not the same thing as you right. know, craft standards per se. Yeah, um, they're not uh, by definition polar opposites, but they're not uh, synonyms. Right? right, they're not exactly the same. So just because something is regulated doesn't mean it will last a long time. And that you know to get come around full circle to what 
we often have found with, with ourselves, with our own woodworking and with students and others that we've, we've shown this old furniture to is that there's a great freedom in being able to step away from machine precision. When you realize that furniture does not have to be perfect inside. What, what happened was uh, factory production, you know, machines cannot deal with rough stuff. They have to machine every surface so that everything registers against the fence and against the table. It has mm-hmm. to be flat. This is easier to do. It, yeah, it's, it's more just is reliable. It's yeah, easier. That's, that's how you make lots of the same thing. Yeah, you make it all uniform. And so when factories started producing this very uniform, very precise stuff, it it had to be that way. People start saying, "Oh, this is quality. Look how perfect!" Right. Mm-hmm. And so the person making at home heard that and absorbed those values and said, I better up my game. I need to make perfect and precise. I need to pretend like I too am a machine. I am also a machine. So I will outfit my shop with all these machines and I will work to that standard. So now you advance it a little bit. People who say, I want to work by hand now. because They think, oh my goodness. But I go, how do I do that? How do I make (laughs) it? How do I perfectly flatten a surface with my my um, four plane or my smoothing plane. How do I do that? It's so hard. It takes so long, but you don't have to. Yeah, right. You can step back, like skip that portion of furniture production, say from like the 1860s or 70s up until the 1900s and skip over that and go back to when it was actually made with those tools. Right. And those pieces that have lasted so they've, they've proven the test of time. They, they pass the test of beauty. They pass the test of usefulness. They are valuable in every one of these dimensions of furniture. Make it like that. And you'll be amazed at how much more fun it is than to have to work to machine precision. Yeah. So he says in uh, 68, 1968, Pi says, uh, but now... Uh, Things are all too many. Uh, high regulation is a commonplace, and free workmanship is rare. Thus, both the old respect for workmanship as such is fast dying out. Hmm. Now, I actually don't think that's really the case today as strongly. I'm imagining he's saying really people don't have a, a really high regard for uh, you know free workmanship, this kind of thing. I think there's been there's there's always sort of this. Um, reactive or responsive movement in history or some some ideal is held up and then there's this counter movement that right. rises up of course in each generation sort of ping pongs back and forth and i think that um there has always been a counter uh a counter revolution right. to the industrial revolution right there's always been the arts and crafts there's always been the um the luddite strain there's always been the hey wait a second there right. were people too and how do we fit this together um, so I, I don't think it's that he's saying um, no one cares about craftsmanship. He starts the book talking about the high stakes of even talking about this word because people fight over it because they want to really understand and value craftsmanship. And the fundamental question of the book, I think you could summarize is why do we value craftsmanship? Hmm. Why do we value the work of the hands? So I think he's saying that... Uh, that we are surrounded in a mass-produced, uh, built environment. He, re- he refers to his ballpoint pen example. He said, the pen I'm writing with, I'm going to throw out and not not flinch at, right? Um, but this respect for what this is, that, that the work that was done in the past is fast dying out uh, hmm. in his day. 
Yeah, so he he goes uh, again to Ruskin. Okay, he he quotes Ruskin. We like this quote. We like it so much we put it on a T-shirt. Uh, Ruskin said, "If we build, let us think that we build forever." So Pi says, "Shall we say, if we build, let us remember to build for the scrap heap?" Uh, so that's kind of the other side of the coin. He's like, "Should like." I, I think he's speaking a bit tongue-in-cheek here. He's saying, we don't ever think like that when we're yeah. building stuff. We don't build as if we're going to throw it out, though there are some exceptions to that, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, Bill Copperthwaite would say something like, build it, let it rot, build it again. But he had a different framework in mind yeah. for his argument. Um, but Russ, uh, um, Pi is saying, no, we don't build just expecting to throw it out. We build so that it lasts within uh, its context. It has appropriate durability, mm-hmm. right? And so he says, a world in which everything was ephemeral would not be worth working for. And I think that is very interesting. That's going to be today's, our next t-shirt. Yeah, I think so. Like <laughs> in today's digital age, like that that rings true in a different way than Pi meant it today. Yeah. Well, it, of course, you know, ephemera is referring yeah. to these this paper. Paper is just going to be thrown out. You have mm-hmm. these little uh, ephemeral pamphlets and stuff like that being passed out. And yeah, yeah, just that's ephemera, right? right? But now paper is like the actual yeah. substantive <laughs> thing. No, we're like, Wait. we do a print magazine. Oh my goodness. That is like countercultural. Yeah. <laughs> it's like ephemeral capital E, right? Yeah. But digital kind of stuff just kind of comes and goes. And you know, right. how many... How many social media past, posts you never from find it two again. years ago do you actually experience? Right. So it's it's so interesting that he he starts you feel this shift. He's talking about durability and the morality of it. Right. So also like, yeah, whoa, he's going this conversation is shifting, and so it, it, he's shifting in his emphasis and what he's talking about. He says men do not live by economics alone. Hmm. There is a question of morale involved. Yeah. And so he says. Uh, there are overwhelming social and aesthetic arguments for durability. And he lists four. Mm-hmm. So now he's saying, okay, there are four social and aesthetic reasons that we need to build forever. Right? Yeah. We need to build with durability in mind. Yeah. He says, first of all, the things we inherit from the past remind us that the men who made them were like us and give us a tangible link with them. This is like... This is like Eric Sloan territory here. This mm-hmm. is like, you know, connecting with the past. It's almost he's 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 starting to abandon his scientific thought and he's going to like something else that is a little harder to define, mm-hmm. but you know, just as valuable. Yeah. Um, so it's I would describe it as um, sometimes it's described as uh, associative value. Mm. You're connecting with you're associating with those of the past. Um, it is. There is a version of nostalgia that is appropriate and healthy that you appreciate the things of the past. Um, and so maybe it's that kind of thing, but there is this sense that when you have something that is durable, that comes through time, that is a tangible link to people who came mm. before you. Mm-hmm. So who would argue, no, there's no value in having any connection with people who come before you? <laughs> right. Obviously, no one would argue that. Yeah. So he's saying, so. Build so therefore, when we build something, we want to be able to reach beyond our generation into other generations, so that the like the larger human community of people, the next generations, can have connections here. If everything we built 
ended here. It all right. went to the, the dump and nothing carried on to the next generation or the one after that. We've never extended our hand to them. We've cut off that, that connection. Yeah, that, that is a danger of living in a throwaway society, um, which I think we mentioned it a few podcasts ago, like Pi was on the cusp of that. In 68, mm-hmm. he was just looking ahead and saying, oh, wow, we're moving towards being a throwaway society yep. with single-use cups and you know plastic bags. Those were around the corner. Uh, he says this, hitherto it has been inconceivable that any one generation should discard all the equipment it has inherited and replace it completely. But he says, you know, foreshadowing, that may yet become possible. Mm. Uh, so then he says, even if it does it will still be imperative for each generation deliberately to make some of its equipment so that that it lasts and survives its makers. So he's saying, if we become this throwaway society, it's imperative that we preserve some of these values of durability with what we make. He's like, even more important then. Like, this is, this is vital. Yeah. The second <clears throat> thing he picks up, the, this uh, social or aesthetic value of, of durability is building right off of that, he says, okay, how about repairability? Mm-hmm. How about let's make some things that can be maintained in repairable? Amen. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> so he's saying, okay, we have this uh, ethical, moral uh, obligation on us that if we're going to make stuff, we really ought to make it so that you can fix it. Yeah. If you make something that you know is going to break in probably in relatively short order, and there is no way to fix it, I think yeah. Pi is saying we have a moral question here. Yeah, why are you why are you doing it that way? This this gets back to the idea of um, things like planned obsolescence and stuff like that, where you don't make any allowance for the the further usage of this object, right? Where you there's a cutoff after which it becomes irredeemable. I think uh, with a lot of cars, it's funny because with vehicle technology now. You can make things much more precisely and you can build cars with so many bells and whistles and all of these things that make driving so comfortable. It isolates you. We've never been more comfortable than we have behind the wheel than now. And we have these things that alert you when you get into another lane. You can have your car drive you down the highway. Pretty soon you can have your, you'll be able to have your car drive you wherever you want. However, the interesting thing is that cars are not lasting as long as they used to. Huh. Yeah, imagine that. <laughs> Cars are like basically they last just to the end of their lease cycle, <laughs> kind of. You know what a weird. And then you need to go and sign up for another lease because so both the this durability, is like a conspiracy between the designers and the workmen. Be. That's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. So <laughs> so because cars have brought in so much new technology to make the driving experience uh, so much more. I don't know. Pleasurable isn't the word, but comfortable is. Yeah. Like um, in in the modern sense of the word comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Matthew like, Crawford squishy. would argue about pleasurable. He'd be like, no, no, no. New cars are squishy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. So these modern vehicles have have done away with the concept of of repairability. You know, like Matthew Crawford says, like mo- there are new cars that don't even have dipsticks. You can't check your own oil. Someone else mm. has to do it. You have to rely on the professional. And, you know, heaven forbid something go wrong with the vehicle. You can't even diagnose it without the right computer and software, right? Mm-hmm. So we've, we've removed the ability for individuals who own these vehicles or own these devices, we'll say, to actually repair them. You know, Apple 
takes a lot of heat sometimes for kind of uh, obscuring the ability of the user to modify or fix their devices. Mm-hmm. You know, we had um, one of our design computers here, your your iMac, that had the ex- expandable um, chips, like the RAM, that you could add to it. Oh, yeah. And you had the last generation where you could actually expand your Even own RAM. Add RAM. And then Apple's like, nope, we're going to seal that off. Nobody <laughs> can touch it anymore. <laughs> And so that's the that's the way of making sure that once your system has been maxed out, once you have all your files and your software and it's starting to get tired, you got to buy a new one. Mm-hmm. You can't just make it better or repair it in Pi's words. Mm-hmm. So Pi's talking about furniture. I'm going on a rant about yeah, cars man. and computers. I got to calm down. Let's get back on track. Yeah. <clears throat> but he says, things which are made to fail early should be made maintainable and repairable so that a man who cares for something other than novelty and status symbols, Apple, can make them last his time respectively while he gets on with his life. Optional durability is what we want. So even if something is made to be used up, you should be able to fix it or prolong it or um, preserve it in some way. Mm -hmm. So so I, I take what he's, he's talking about. Social and aesthetic reasons. And I think the first two he's describing social reasons, the oughtness of it. Um, and then there's this aesthetic reason. I think there are, there are two here, uh, the third and fourth. The third one is that he says uh, age and wear, i.e. patina, uh, diversify surfaces mm. uh, in, in a way that nothing else will. Yep. So he says if nothing lasts, then we're going to be denied that unique yeah, beauty. Yeah, it which won't is age really... well if it doesn't age at all. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's an interesting argument for him, for for durability. That he think about that. He's saying why should something last? Because when something lasts, it has a unique beauty that you can't replicate any other way. And we want that beauty, and we need that beauty, and therefore we should make things that last so that they can have it. Interesting argument. It's yeah. One of four, um, but that he that shows how much his focus is on this visual value of. Uh, age and wear, patina, that he says, this is really, really valuable that we see these these things of beauty. And so that's one good reason to make something to last more than two years. Um, so he says that then another reason, the fourth reason, is that where everything is ephemeral, novelty comes to be overvalued hmm. and mistaken for art. Hmm. Just fashion, pure and simple, he says. So I think that's important because the last chapter he was talking about how um, art cannot be reduced to novelty. Just because something is new, that's Doesn't not make what it art, art is. Yeah. And so he says, if we make things that, um, that will not last, then newness becomes this, it's the cult of newness, the, right. the, the cult of novelty or something. The Everything thing. is about the latest. And he said, and then what that's going to do is everyone's going to think art is just novelty yeah something no one's done before which makes it worth pursuing and that's why yeah. it's so valuable and obviously that's rampant that's quite uh, that is common. rampant today um art is thought of as not so much as you know skill or that kind of thing or even beauty <laughs> it's per- yeah it's particularly focused on novelty what has no one else done before yeah. and he's saying that would of course be really really bad right <laughs> of yeah. course uh yeah and so the the cultural shift is such that um you know, it's it's not seen as bad, but appealing to to. It's almost like how much further 
can you push outlandishness beyond what has been done before? Yeah. And Pi is saying, uh, be careful with that because novelty is like, is like, you know, sugar and you just keep pounding the sugar. There's no, <laughs> nothing lasting in it. Um, so he says, uh, this is where he talks about materials a little bit. He says, um, <clears throat> by the definitions we've adopted, the durability of any main thing depends partly, perhaps largely, on workmanship, where the workmanship of risk is used, but depends on design almost entirely in the workmanship of certainty. For there, nearly everything which affects durability has been predetermined and can be specified by the designer. Right? It's in the plans. If it's badly designed and it fails, it's the designer's fault. Right. Right. Uh, and then he talks a little bit about materials here. He says, It is customary for the workman to select material from a stock which the designer will have specified. So you see that traditionally. Um, it's not so much a designer, but tradition would pass down the uses, usage of certain woods. Mm -hmm. You have, you know, Osage Orange for your bow or Elm for your wagon wheel hub or uh, basically... And, are, and selecting the particular board with the, right, the direction. Exactly. There's the, a sense the of how to select the right materials to um, magnify durability, mm -hmm. to make it as durable as possible with what you have. And so you could say, well, that's the that's um, design imposed on the object, or you say it's just kind of like tradition imposing gathered knowledge to say this is the best thing for the job. But mm -hmm. the, the worker is responsible for picking that out and doing mm -hmm. it well. Um, so that has a major influence in durability. Um, but he talk, So he talks about chair making and cabinet making factories. But then he says, um, <clears throat> uh, however, this is simply a matter of convenience and trade custom, not of principle, for in nearly all such cases, the choice could be made by the designer rather than the workman. So this is, of course... Um, moving ahead towards like the the setting of specialization where the worker just takes what comes and does his thing and passes it on, mm -hmm. right? He has less and less an influence over the materials. So, um, yeah, so proper materials do add to durability. And what he's saying is with workmanship of certainty, mat materials and design are the primary influencers of durability, yeah. So he says premature failure to, to basically bring all of these ideas together. Premature failure today, nowadays, can less often be blamed on workmanship mm -hmm. than is usually thought. Uh, it is only in the workmanship of risk, not certainty, that uh, the responsibility is is um, in the the workman's hands. Right. So. Um, that's the idea. That's the fundamental idea that when you're in a situation of workmanship of certainty, that the burden of durability goes to the designer because the whole nature of that way of working is that as much as is feasible, it's all going to be predetermined. Yeah. The shape, the uh, grain direction, the, all that kind of stuff is the whole idea is let's get this predetermined so we don't yeah. mess it up. Right. And workmanship of risk is saying, I would like a table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then the workman goes off to build this table and uses uh, judgment, dexterity, and care to uh, understand the materials and to know how to use the tools. Um, and so that's, of course, uh, a caricature. I'm, I'm describing these two different ways. But the more something is uh, dependent on the risk of the of the workman's uh, skill, you know, 
being played out in the action, um, that is going to be a situation that the durability is really dependent on that skill. Mm. How well can you cut to the line? When you make an edge joint, yep. does it, is it going to hold up? Do you have the skill to do that? Um, you can't blame the designer for the edge joint failing, right? Yep. You have to blame the workman. You have to say, well, why, why didn't that last? Exactly. And or, then, or yeah. blame the guy who was jumping on the table. It, yes, which is another, I mean, he doesn't talk, he doesn't have a chapter on like the elephants in your house for durability or anything. <laughs> um, but yeah, like if you build to a measured drawing to detailed set of plans that, that dictate lumber type, there's a cut list, you have templates, if you build to that and the object fails, it's the designer's fault, mm -hmm. right? Uh, he says here, all the world knows that any good workman feels a responsibility for the durability of what he makes and feels bound at the very least to make the unseen parts of a job as sound as those which are visible. And so when he's talking about soundness here- Sound, not comely. Exactly. Like you see these big heavy glue blocks that are rough and have bark on them and those are very sound mm -hmm. that is actually ideal for that purpose yeah uh, it doesn't have to be perfectly shaped or smooth like the other sides but it is sound for its purpose yeah right so he's saying you don't want to hide shoddy workmanship right. on the backside. right yeah you know where you're like oh this looks like this, this looks like junk and this probably won't hold, so I'll just stick it in the I'll back. I'll put it here where no one will see it. Yeah, he said that's that's immoral. Yeah. Right? That's not an ethical uh, way to build something. But he's saying everything should be sound. And that is that is what you see, these things that last, even if they're rough on the inside, they are sound. Mm -hmm. They really are holding up well. Yeah, or they can be repaired. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, this is a lot of food for thought in this chapter. Yeah, I think so. He ends with, he says, um, that the workman is apt to hold a thing, uh, to, that work, he is apt to hold that a thing is not made properly unless it is made to last. Mm. And so I think that's, he's wrapping up the chapter with this where he started saying, uh, those who make things feel a, an ethical obligation to make something to last. And he said there are many reasons for it. Uh, part of it is a you know a cross generational kind of thing, reaching out to the next generation, preserving a tradition that's come from the past. It has that similar sort of feeling that we want to connect with more than our little immediate circle around us. Um, but there's also a beauty that comes with it, um, and and that art is not just reducible to what's you know the fad blowing through what's the trend what's the fashion but that there's actually some skill that's going to be seen and we need to make sure that our art when we think about art we hold that up skill is very important and so if we can make things that are skillful that are going to last that will carry to the next generation then our kids and our kids kids will see that and say i want to build like that hmm. i think that's worth doing i think that's something that i want to i want to learn to build forever and carry that on to the next generation so I think it's a it's a short chapter that he talks through this these things, but it's it's powerful I think to get us to be thinking about the value because we're talking about the value of working by hand. Why is it good that we build things, right? So with that, uh, we thank you for, again for listening to the Mortis and Tenon podcast. If you haven't already, you can subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. If you have questions or comments, you can leave them below. And if you could, uh, leave a review for our podcast so others can find out about it. Uh, thank you for listening. Thanks.